It's the Literary Lectures Podcast, Kings of Horror episodes, reading and digesting books from the masters of modern horror, and viewing the films. Your co-hosts tonight are Vicky Ray, Leandro Ghazi, Frank Johnson, David Grant, and Keith Shago, giving you a word-by-word, scene-by-scene, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between. Let's License podcast, and it's our Kings of Horror episode where we'll be discussing the book and screen. And today we're discussing Dean Coots's Odd uh, Thomas and the book and the film coming out in 1980. Oh, sorry, folks. Um, coming out in, ni- in 2013. Sorry, yeah. I was gonna say, <laughs> add a decade. <laughs> Precisely. And today we have with us, we got Barry Waldo. Hello, Barry. Hey, everybody. And we got Leon Gogazi, or I'm going to call him LG, because I won't mispronounce his surname like I've done for the last year and a half. Hello, Leandro. <laughs> and I'm your guest, Keith Shago. And before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. So starting with you, Barry, what have you been up to since last time we saw you, which was a year ago when we did Anna and the Apocalypse? Yeah, wow. Let's see. So we got the Anna and the Apocalypse uh, young adult book out, and that's done really well. It had a great... You know, what was it? Third anniversary Christmas, I think, this year. Uh, you know, and then that movie just continues to get discovered by more and more people. So that's always exciting. Um, I've just recently launched a big partnership between uh, Hot Wheels, one of the Mattel brands, and a music artist, Luis Fonzi. Most people will know him for Despacito and um, many, many other hits. Uh, so we've got that on the market now. And just busy writing, writing more stories. I've got a couple of children's books I want to get out this year and hopefully my first adult fiction. So that's keeping me really busy. COVID was great for writing, uh, but I'm getting a little anxious now. I'm ready to get some of these these stories out. Yeah, getting ready to go meet the public and see how how things are going. Understand that side of it. And what about yourself? Yeah, Comic-Cons. All the let bring back the you know the conventions and all the fan uh, events. I miss those. Yeah, I know. I mean, um, I'm supposed to be doing a TED talk in uh, April, and I'm kind of like going. It would be nice to have like people there <laughs> so you can get like a <laughs> <good> response. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I did a talk in. I did a a, a Comic Con kind of a talk here. It was in. When was it? It was about six months ago. And it was kind of weird because it was like me on my own. And then and then people were like dialed in and it's like you get like this little screen thing up. And it's like it's 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 an odd feeling. So it'd be good to get, 
you know, people reactions as they're coming in live and get that feel of a, you know, the interaction. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that things will be greater this year round sort of thing. And what about yourself, Leandro? What have you been up to? Reading, more reading, <laughs> um, working. Uh, I'm, well, I'm doing, I have been doing another, a course. So I have been with also with that. Um, yeah, not much. <laughs> reading. <laughs> I would say just reading. <laughs> Well, myself, um, you know, I had the game that came out, um, God, I guess it was October. So that's done really well. It's, it's now, it's fallen off the number one slot, unfortunately. So now it's number four internationally. So I guess that's a good thing, <laughs> but that's quite good. And then, um, yeah, and I'm just, you know, I've got a lot of contracts through to write more dialogue for computer games and stuff like that. So that's going really well, actually. So been doing that and now I'm off my, um 18 hour shifts now going back to normal nine to five and so i got time to start doing a bit more here and there so yeah and besides that television wise i've been watching you know Co- cobra kai yeah gotta give big thumbs up for that any i mean yeah it's it sounds like something that should be really really bad but i've really really enjoyed all you know three seasons this season hasn't let anyone down another season coming titans um Overjoyed with that, stuck to that, and everything that's coming on Netflix and Amazon. Though I have to sit there and say that some of, one of the biggest shows that people should watch is Yellow Jackets, starring Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci, I mean, I mean, I love Juliette Lewis, but Christina Ricci, I mean, she reminds me of um, Michelle Pfeiffer before she becomes Catwoman in Batman Returns, just the, her whole demeanor. And I love, um, and I, I, you know, she did a movie back in the, late 80s early 90s called now and then where she played a young Demi Moore where she worked very very closely with Demi Moore to get Demi Moore's characteristics as the younger version and I think she's done the same thing here in reverse because the, the younger version of her they got they got like each other down pat so it's kind of interesting to watch that interplay between the two of them but yeah yellow I've heard so many good things about yellow jackets I can't wait yeah I really got to look forward to it. and then I finished watching Dexter because of course that came back and that it was interesting. Um, I'm not not to say too much, but yeah, the only interesting thing is all it all takes place in my hometown, around my hometown, which is quite funny to hear them like to mention. Oh, we're going to Watertown. We're going to Fort Drum. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> but I Come mean, on, it's interesting. All, it's be him. He's excellent, but all in on The Witcher. All in on The Witcher. Yes, The Witcher, fantastic as well. Yeah. I tried Wheel of Time. Did you try Wheel of Time? I couldn't, it did not work for me. I couldn't get into that. There's a couple of things I couldn't get into, though I did try this um, German series called Kit. Kits, um, which is a, set, set in a Swiss um, ski lodge, which is a, it's okay. I, I mean, I, I didn't watch it in this German language. I was a bit lazy. I decided to put on the dubbing. The dubbing wasn't bad. Though the little gay kid is it kind of looked like a, a gay short version of Groucho Marx. He had like the Groucho Marx eyebrows and the mustache, and I always expect him to like to pull out a mustache and go, that's the greatest thing I've heard. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. So, so but that was quite good. But there, yeah, Netflix, there's a lot of decent stuff out there, but there's also a lot of 
interesting stuff coming out the main main stuff i saw a couple things on amazon which is good called cruel summer which i really enjoyed you know apparently they're coming out with a second season of that um i saw what she did which i really enjoyed so there's some really interesting things you just unfortunately because everything's on streaming you have to kind of know what you're looking for so you, i i do a lot with like suggestions oh have you seen this and then add that to my list and because otherwise you find yourself doing that netflix thing where you spend three or four hours searching and then by the end of it it's like i'm going to bed <laughs> so now I just make sure to uh put put the sandman at the top of your list oh I, you. I marked that already i go netflix i i know i urge everyone to do this with netflix is like once a week go through new and coming and this add reminder and that goes right into your watch list so I, now i spend time just going through my watch list and then i'll watch stuff in my watch list so, and sandman's on there resident evil's on there um quite a few things are on there that i'm looking forward to so it's gonna be a good year on netflix this year Well, I guess this brings us to Odd Thomas, the novel, which is a thriller novel by American writer Dean Coots. It was published in 2003. The novel derives its title from the protagonist, a 20-year-old short-order cook named Odd Thomas. The book, which was well-received and lauded by critics, went on to become a New York Times bestseller, following the success of the novel Six Sequels, Forever Odd, 2005, Brother Odd, 2006, Odd Hours, 2008, Odd Apocalypse, 2012, and Deeply Odd by 2013, were also written by Coots. The final novel in the series, St. Odd, came out in 2015, was released on January 13, 2015. Three graphic novels and prequels have been released, and in the postscript to the graphic novel, Coots states that, God willing, there will be six Odd Thomas novels, a special Odd Thomas adventure short novel, Odd Interlude was released on December 26, 2012, and another Odd Thomas, You Are Destined to Be Together Forever on December 9, 2014. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the synopsis and be right back to discuss Odd Thomas by Dean Coots. Dean Coots's Odd Thomas. In the beginning of the book, Odd Thomas is silently approached by the ghost of a young girl brutally raped and murdered. And through his unique ability to understand the dead, is psychologically linked to her killer, a former schoolmate named Harlow Landerson. Coots discloses how Odd was named and begins layer by layer to show how Odd's dysfunctional upbringing has shaped his life. As those details are uncovered, his supernatural abilities begin to make more sense. While working as a short order cook in California desert town, Odd meets a suspicious looking man in the diner followed by Budoks, shadowly spirit creatures who appear only during times of death and disaster. This man, who Odd nicknames Fungus Man due to his waxy complexion and blonde hair that resembles mold, has an unusually large swarm of Budoks following him, and Odd is convinced that this man is connected to some terrible catastrophe that is about to occur. To gather more information about him, Odd uses his gift of supernatural intuition, which his soulmate Broadwin, aka Stormy, Llewellyn calls psychic magnetism to track him down. Odd Sixth Sense leads to Fungus Man's home, and Odd begins to uncover more details about the man and a mysterious otherworldly link to the dark forces about to be unleashed on the town of Pico Mundo. Accompanied 
sometimes by the ghost of Elvis Presley and encountering other memorable spirits, including a murdered prostitute, Odd is soon deeply involved in an attempt to prevent the disastrous bloodshed he knows will follow the next day. The characters of Odd Thomas include Odd Thomas, who sees dead people but then by God he does something about it. Odd can see the dead and also see shadowy figures that normally lurk around people that will cause death or will die. They are called Budoks and feed on the pain of others. Odd is a 20-year-old short-order cook at a breakfast joint in Pico Mundo. His girlfriend is Stormy, little Ozzy is his best friend. Odd leaves a simple life because he has to, since he finds his job of speaking to the lingering dead complicated enough. Odd is an optimist, seeing the good in most individuals despite his troubling life. He fears going anywhere with a large population because it wouldn't interfere with his simple life. He would be overwhelmed by the volume of dead in a large city like Los Angeles or Las Vegas. He never told his father or mother because he thought that his father would use his son's powers to make himself rich. He once met a boy who also saw Budoks, but when the Budoks realized this, they seemed to cause a fatal accident, killing the little boy instantly. So Odd keeps his ability a secret. Odd's destiny is Stormy, whose real name is Broadwin, but she prefers to be called Stormy because she thinks this makes her sound less like an elf. She is the manager of an ice cream shop and hopes to own a shop of her own someday. Stormy's parents died when she was very young. She was adopted by a couple when she was seven. Her foster father sexually molested her for almost three months. She reported into a social worker and was moved to an orphanage where she lived until 17, at which point she was cared for by her uncle, Father Sean Llewellyn, rector of the St. Bartholomew's Church. She remained under his legal guardianship until she could become independent. She is a strong believer in delayed gratification that this life is a boot camp for the next, which she calls service. And that finally is the third life are the rewards. She insists on waiting for sex with Odd until marriage, hoping to make their first time together a meaningful experience and not to bring the memories of her abuse to on their bed. She's also the only person who knows everything about Odd seeing the dead. Now Chief Wyatt Porter helps Odd many times, acting almost as a surrogate father. He is one of the few people who knows Odd sees the dead, but he does not know all of Odd's secrets. He is shot four times by one of the antagonists, who would later shoot people at the mall, but survives. Now, Robert Thomas, aka Fungus Man Robertson, is initially portrayed as the main antagonist. He comes to Pico Mondo, surrounded by Budoks, and immediately Odd is suspicious of him. Little is explained to Robertson directly. Odd finds that he is obsessed with serial killers, as evidenced by the files he keeps on them. Robertson, who approached by Eccles, Varner, and Gossett a few months before the incident of the Green Moon Mall, having met them at a satanic cult gathering. They were interested only in his mother's money. Eccles, Varner, and Gossett killed Robertson's mother with his permission and gave him her ears as a trophy. Robertson is murdered by one of his cons- conspirators when they find out that Odd's attention is being drawn towards them and their plans. Robertson then becomes one of the lingering dead and stalks Odd for a short time as a poltergeist. When Robertson's ghost confronts Odd at his home, he goes into an uncontrollable raid, destroying much of the kitchen. Odd leaves him there in the house, which he is assumed to still be haunting. Now, Burn Echoes, Simon Varner, and Kevin Gossett, these three had conspired with Robert Thomas Robertson, aka Fungus Man, to have a mass killing at the mall. The three had gotten involved in a ritualistic Satanism as teenagers and first killed when they were 15 on a dare. They pledged their loyalty to their dark god, bound to go into careers in which they could promote Satanism and chaos. 
Varner and Eccles became cops while Gaza became a school teacher. Varner had killed Robert Thomas Robertson after he found out that Odd had been in Robertson's home and suspected him. He then tried to frame Odd for the murder. Eccles and Varner were the two gunmen that Odd subdued. Eccles first was the bat, then Varner with a shot to the shoulder and head. Gaza had shot Odd twice in the back. Odd managed to pull the wires out of the bomb, thereby disarming it as he fell to the ground. Gossett later told everything that had happened between all the conspirators. They called the atrocity just another way of worshipping. Now, Lizzie Oz Ozzy is nicknamed Little despite being larger than his father. Ozzy had a six finger on his left hand and has published many very successful detective novels. He has a pet cat named Terrible Chester, who Ozzy claims he is over 50 years old, and has pictures to prove it. Terrible Chester does not like Odd, and Little Ozzy is one of the few people who knows about Odd's gifts. And this is The World of Odd Thomas by Dean Coots. Hello, welcome back to Leisure License Podcast. We're discussing Odd Thomas by Dean Coots. So, Leandro, what are your thoughts about Odd Thomas, the novel? Um... Well, I really enjoyed it. Well, first I didn't know who was about, never heard about, about this book before. And I started to read a bit. Then I watched the movie and then started to read the book again. And generally I don't do this. But I really enjoyed it because when I started to read at the beginning, you know, when you can't make the picture in your head, what was, how could be the place? Um, I could read it, I could understand it, but you know, you know, when you can make a. Sometimes I read, you know, some some stories, and I, it's I don't know, it's happening in certain places, and I can't imagine it. And then when I see the movies, more or less like that. But this one I couldn't imagine much. Then I watched the movie, and then um, it was kind of easier to understand more the story and everything. Really enjoyed. I really enjoyed a few parts, like for example. There was one little one part that he was explaining uh, how each thing on the menu has a name, right? Which I don't remember now. But for example, I don't imagine uh, you have scrambled eggs. It was called a different way. Yeah, um, diner, diner speak, American diner speak. Yeah, and it was for me. It was really fun to read all that. Um, I never heard that before, even though I've been living in USA. And um, and for example, when he was mentioned that he could see um, Elvis, you know, and, and all the, all, for me, I, know, I really enjoyed that, that, that part, and I really, no, I really enjoyed the story, really, really cool, easy to read, because it has chapters that are not really, really long, yeah. uh, yes, and I, I enjoyed it. Was Barry, what are your thoughts? Uh, Dean Kuntz is, you know, as a writer, he's kind of a, um, what would you call it? One of my writer heroes, uh, particularly in the genre. And uh, I've, I only made it through the first couple of Thomas books, but this particular first book I thought was really great. I really enjoy the way he paints the picture of the characters. Um, also the family dynamics, because that sets the stage, I think between understanding um, the parents uh, odds issues with his parents uh, his mother and father, that whole relationship, the estrangements, um, and his gift. So I love how uh, Dean painted those uh, aspects of the character. They started to form quite clearly in my head. 
it's a tough character, I think, Odd Thomas, because, you know, he's supposed to be a plain kind of everyday guy. And sometimes I find those are the hardest characters to write because by trying to explain that they're clean cut um, and that they're kind of more simple, average looking, uh, it's very difficult to give the reader an image of that. So that was where the movie really kind of came in. Once you put a face or an actor in that role, it's pretty amazing. But I did love his style of being able to what, you know, what I would call some sometimes, uh, information weave into text and uh, yet he was able to still show not tell too much of that which I think the movie failed at quite frankly um, and a couple of things we get into that a little bit later but overall um, you know it there wouldn't be seven eight books uh, in the odd Thomas series if he wasn't good at creating this world and that people didn't really uh, respond well to it I mean my um I'm not a lover of first person narrative because almost like you kind of know what, you know, you kind of, you know, you kind of, when you read a first person narrative, you kind of know what's going to happen to him at the end. Though I did like, but in this case, I have to make an exception because Dean Coots gives us like a Sunset Boulevard feel to it. It's like, you know, he sets things up, but at the same time, it's like, you don't you're never quite sure what's going to happen to the narrative because anything can happen to the narrator in this in this case you know and and seeing everything through odd thomas's eyes gives you a interesting look about things because what's quite good about this character is and this is what's really hard about first person narrative and i think a lot of first time writers write, try to do first narrative because they think that's easy but it's really hard to write a first narrative and make that character likable all the way through. And Dean Koos does this fantastically well. I mean, I'm, I read stuff where it's been the first narrative and it's like, you know, even though the story's really interesting, I really hated the person I'm spending this I, 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 I with. And I, I guess it was like the Hunger Games is a bit like this. You know, she's fine, but then by the time you, you're in her head the whole time and by the time you're finished with her or uh, Twilight, you're stuck in Bella's head the whole time. And the thing is, it's a place no one wants to be stuck in anyway. And you're kind of like, and she, you know, you got, the, you know, here we got this, you know, this woman who's basically entering this world and she thinks she's so much better than everyone else and blah, da, 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 da. That by the time you just kind of was like, what does anyone see in this person? Why do they want to be friends with her? She's bloody horrible. Where- yeah, but it is really, I mean, it's so effective when you have a single hero or heroine that you're following all the way through and you know like Katniss yeah that's a really long book I mean um, Dean doesn't write short books either really Um, so you do spend an an exorbitant amount of time in someone's head but Odd Thomas I mean the whole story everything is about and through his eyes and I don't know that there would have been that the book would have been as effective had he written it in a third person yeah and he and he's done the most winning thing he can do. He's made someone who is likable all the way through. You like, you like him, you know? And the thing is he recognizes his weak points. He recognizes his strong points. He rec- and he does everything with this sarcastic bit of humor that you're just living with him. And there is a little bit of meta going on here that he's fully aware of what's going on behind him. And, you know, with the pop references and everything like this. And there's a, but there's also a kindness to him, even with, even with um, when he's coming up against the badness and stuff like this, there is a kindness to him where, you know, he's, 
he's torn, but at the same time, it, he's good. There, there's a essential goodness to him. And considering where he's coming from, you know, his parents are, I mean, once you get into like the parents back of the story, the parents and stuff like this, you're kind of going, well, I mean, how did he end up like that? <laughs> he shouldn't actually yeah. should have been like the other way sort of thing. So uh, his dad's a con artist. His mother's in an insane asylum or something like that. Right. She, yeah, she's not quite there. I mean, I think what kept her out of there is basically wasn't the father, the alimony <laughs> that yeah. keeps her in her life. So therefore, you know, but when he goes to her and he just mentions things, she keeps saying, I'm going to shoot myself and shoot myself. And, you know, and then we have the scene where basically, you know, he talks about his childhood when he was had the cold or the flu. And because he's coughing, she couldn't deal with it. And so she makes him look into the barrel of the gun to see the bullet. It's like, you know, I'm going to shoot myself if you don't stop coughing. You know, it's that kind of. That's a great example, Keith, where, you know, you can get into all that detail in a book because technically all you're trying to do is hit the minimum word count. And Dean goes well past that um, for this genre of book. And, um, but, you know, it does allow you to get really inside all that. And I think if I remember correctly, the movie does all that in like two minutes or less. Like it's just backstory at the beginning yeah. of the film and then you move past it. And I also like the simple fact that, you know, even though he's, there's been rough times in his life, he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hold that accountable about who he is and who he's going to be as well, which is quite nice. Cause normally what you would get in the first person narrative is like, you know, my mom didn't love me enough. And then basically this is the reason why this person's kind of, negative and horrible all the way through and it's quite nice to see he's taken that and it's immediately able to move forward and I, you know i'd also give dean coots a lot of credit there to do that be able to do that because there are so many authors that are not able to do that you know sort of thing and i think that dean coots is also quite he should be really up there really you know he should be like a household name and he He's never quite gotten to that household name situation, though, you know, which is always quite amazing with Dean Coots. I mean, the reason why we did Autonomous because um, there have been movie adaptations of Dean Coots that have been less than not good. <laughs> so, and Autonomous is probably the best adaptation when we get to the film. So that's the reason why we did, chose Autonomous because when I was doing Kings of Horror, and we're looking at horror novelists. I tried to find one that we had a good film to go along with the book sort of thing or sort of thing. And Dean Coots has a lot of wonderful books out there, but they, he tends to get his film, the film versions of them are never quite that good, whether it's the watchers or so on and so forth. It seemed to pale in comparison, which is kind of weird because Dean Coots is probably like the everyman kind of writer sort of thing. You know, he takes, he, he has that kind of Stephen King thing where he takes the everyman and puts them in, remarkable situations but you know I'll, I'll say this but he has one thing that Stephen King doesn't have and uh, Stephen King has really bad endings I find he doesn't have very good endings he like has these great stories and then you know, like the last 20, 20 pages you're like okay what did you do here but Dean Coots always has really good endings and he also knows how to do series I mean he did his Frankenstein series is a, one of the most fantastic um, book series he's ever done and there's a likability to him and i asked to say when i do look at the book jacket and you do see his picture he kind of there he kind of reminds me of the burt reynolds of horror because that's that burt reynolds look to him <laughs> <laughs> no that's one i hadn't thought of yet yeah. 
yeah, I I think that um, God, the Watchers. I mean, Watchers was just a terrible film. I mean, it's hard to even talk about that adaptation. But I think a lot of his books are tough to adapt. I mean, maybe as visual effects are getting so sophisticated now, there's more opportunity for some of his books. But even in Odd Thomas, you know, he wasn't able to, there were certain parts they dropped. And I don't know if that was a budgetary uh, decision or if it was a creative decision, but, you know, you can take the ghost of Elvis. I mean, there's something that was almost completely dropped out of between the uh, translation into the screenplay from the book. Um, It works really well when you can write it artfully but it can be so campy uh, if you try to translate it to film and you don't have the budget uh, or the sophistication of visual effects uh, technology to pull that off in a really compelling way. I kind of wondering if it has something to do with um, getting the rights to Elvis, Elvis um, Presley's likeness or something, because when we go into the film a bit more, it, I think it would have helped the film to like highlight what was going on with that was Presley music. It would add to that extra bit of flair um, because what highlights the book is basically Elvis Presley music. You know, you know, are you lonesome tonight when he's, you know, he's trying to figure out everything and the songs that he's listening to are all highlighted by Elvis Presley music. And, and there's that, the coming together, there's some characters that are left off that are really endearing. Like the woman who owns the diner, you know, she's fantastic, you know, and the loss of her, husband and though she doesn't want him back she you know but there's that loss there and she and she's comfortable with that loss she even though she's wallowing that loss she's comfortable with that loss and it's part of her personality that makes her caring and loving at the same time and and i had to sit there and say with the book all the care another thing with first person narrative you don't get this with like you normally kind of get these cardboard characters running around these the main character but in this, we get a full full understanding of these, you know, of secondary characters and everything that's going on there, whether it's Terry and her daughters or whether it's, um, what's the um, fat guy's name, Fat Ozzy? You know, and the careness that goes on there. And even, even if Fat Ozzy's cat has its own personality, it's fully, you know, fully realized and full of, you know, information and everything like this. And it's it's an interesting book because it, you know, to be honest, I mean, the book could probably you could probably take two hundred pages out and still get the main narrative, but you need those two hundred pages to actually get a full realization of the world that we're entering, and there's a realistic view of the world that we're entering as well. So, I also think that it's like really interesting because what we have read, for example, books there are books about ghosts, um, or you could even say, I don't know, movies, I don't know, like um, the, the devil coming from the other side, you know, or something like that. But I, as far as I remember, I've never seen a movie until now where there's someone that can't see um, people that is dead and they can tell you what happened or give you clues, right? Mm-hmm. Well, except from one day with uh, Bruce Willis. But... That one is a bit different, also. So I don't know. I think this this is really well. I mean, at least for me, it was really interesting. You know, it's like death, but in a different way. 
I think also I think what lends itself to it is that when Odd Thomas is solving, you know, like the murder case in the beginning, and then we find out that the spirits don't speak. So basically it's about how he has to read them, how he has to interpret them. What's kind of which is kind of like a um, a footnote or a precursor about basically why he, how he you know takes the information that he gets from the real world around him and how he basically has to play that through his head that basically he has to fill in the blanks and he fills in everything because they don't speak to him the dead don't speak to him he has to put all the story together himself and it's only after they'll touch him and then they'll get like the story and but it's always after he solves the crime or after everything's happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he has like a premonition. Yeah. yeah, much much more easier to do in a visual medium than a written medium. Yeah, I. And what what do you think about the um, what do you think about the the black room? Do you you know how do you interpret that the black room? Because the thing is, that's another thing I found which is quite interesting. Because the black room when he goes into the um, who he thinks is you know the guy with the blonde the blonde hair that's kind of badly bleached into his house and it's basically very you know unorganized and kind of messy and then he finds this black room that he enters it's just pitch black and then and then he comes well it's quite interesting because you get a lot of different interpretations so uh, my feeling about that was the the budak was it the budax budax was it be all black because there's nothing but a bunch of bodaks shoved into this room and that's the reason all was pitch black? Or was this a, a portal to another world like the hell? Or was it a portal to the spiritual world? Or Well, for me, it's, I saw it like, I don't know, it was, it's really interesting you had that que- your question because for me it's like, like a portal to another world but at the same time then uh, later he, I, well, the story where he said that he was he was able to see himself like he went like to the past. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's strange because if you will be going to a different uh, place, you will never go back to the past. Mm-hmm. Or, or I mean, no, I guess you could say you're kind of like a maybe it was like a purgatory situation. Where you're kind of like in God's waiting room, <laughs> just like basically like like when you sit in A and E and you feel like everyone's being seen before <laughs> you, sort of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I, because the thing is, is that once the the Bodak leave, then the room becomes, you know, then he then he's, when he goes back into the room and basically it's very sparse and very tidy and very organized, you know, with all the serial killers, you know, whether I think Charles Manson and the Unibomber and so on and so forth are on the wall, sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I was a bit confused by, not confused, but it made my mind wander because you had yeah. what Stormy thought it was. So he kind of gives an interpretation because he's not quite sure. But then when he does mention it, it's like just hearing the other character's view of it. I was kind of like, okay, this is quite interesting. What exactly was that outside the little red dot that you can never seem to get to? Yeah. Or was he having well, an out-of-body know- experience? Did he, ever, did he even enter that black room? What I was thinking is, imagine that the it's a portal that opens, right? And you are not looking that portal. You are just standing in the place where the portal opens, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you will be there, kind of going to the other side, but at the same time, no, because you didn't plan to go there. You were standing 
Imagine in, in the seat where you're sitting now, now it's open a portal, right? So no matter what you do, you are in the middle of the, of the thing, but you are not. Because imagine that you could have opened the portal where you are seated or where I'm seated. And it would be to different places. So, so I don't know. So maybe it could be something like that. Now that's why he then he so he was able to like kind of see the the future or the well, no, the past because he then he kind of he, he that thing closed and he went back to where um, going back to the present let's say right I don't know it's confusing. but then again Sorry. I guess yeah, our Thomas, you can edit this part <laughs> then again I guess you can look at our Thomas this whole his whole being is dealing with past. You know, whether, you know, it's spirits coming to him help or their death already happened. So he has to deal with the past in order to pass them forward to yes. where they need to go. So you do have that going as a. And then in the film, didn't they have the, um, they had birds and cages and animals in that room? Yeah. I mean, it was really fascinating when they opened up the portal within that. I mean, part of me felt like it was a way to convey a bunch of back information. Um, yeah. yeah that you needed to get done really quick and set up the supernatural uh, world of the Bodax and move on pretty quickly, you know, cause that, uh, that set in the film is just a uh, location, obviously yeah. um, it was an abandoned house. Uh, I knew some people that actually worked on the film uh, in New Mexico. And, you know, that, I don't think there was too much thought given to that because I think they were able to pull the descriptions fairly straightforward from the book um, and then all of a sudden you bring in the visual effects afterwards in post, which is where the Bodaks all come in. Um, yeah. So I think it was a way to communicate and set up and also, you know, to mislead the reader or the viewer in some ways, because at that point you didn't really know if um, that character, I'm trying to remember his name, um, the blonde haired guy, when I called one of the worst wigs and, uh, ever used in Hollywood because you just can't you can't quit thinking about it. Fungus um, Bob, I think is what they were calling them. Was it? Fungus yeah, Fungus Bob. Bob. I always <laughs> thought that the fungus <laughs> reference was probably due to his hair. Um, and he smelled the, the, uh, the mildew, didn't he, or something? <laughs> yeah, mildew, yeah, I mean, it would, think about it. It was, about one, it was one great big false lead um, to take you down a path and assume that there was one bad guy. Um, which is not the way, you know, the film turns out. Mm. So I think that that set that up nicely. Well, no, 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 I, I was thinking, well, imagine it's like if he have a premonition and then what he was explained to us, right, at the beginning is what happened before, right? Like all that portal opening and all those products passing and no one, no, none of them can make him any harm, right? Because that has they can't, they can't cause them harm if they don't if unless you notice who they if, if they notice that you can see them and then they can yes. cause them harm. But if they yeah. feel that you can't see them, they can't do anything to you. Yeah, but then I, then I was thinking, well, maybe he have a first if he have a premonition. Then when he saw the the action that him entering again, let's say the premonition was finishing, and then that's why then you know that the about that came after he had the permission that he hide behind the door. Mm-hmm. So probably the portal was still open, but there were no, none of them like coming back, coming through until then few of them came. I don't know. It's really interesting. 
I mean, we also have a thing called that we can take a the final destination moment. I guess it could be what you can call it, where death has a design, and there there is there are rules to death. It seems like that, like he sit there and said about the mother and her children that basically, like, if I save you, this means that someone might have to take your place in death's design or death's door. <laughs> so I'm kind of wondering that, you know. What do you think about the simple fact that because he saved the mother and daughter, that she, that she didn't die in her premonition because he told them to get out of the mall, that maybe maybe that's the reason why Stormy died. Because, you know, he's saving one, because he, 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 they do mention this. They don't go into a lot of detail in the book, but he does mention it quite a few times that, you know, if if, if I prevent this from happening, then this, this means that maybe someone else might have to take their place or this might be their place. So we have this thing about what is destiny and destiny based about choice sort of thing. So, you know, cause you know, at the last, the last three quarters of the book is basically, you know, odd feeling very, very torn between stepping in to some respect to helping some people. He tries to help everyone, of course, to stop the catastrophe from happening. But at the same time, if you have one or two people out, does this mean that someone else has to take their place? So, well, Keith, I think you finally struck on one of my first pet peeves related to the film, um, because I think that character's name is Viola with the two daughters. Viola, Viola, yeah, Viola Peabody and the two girls. Yeah, yeah. that he saves, and um, that scene where she comes back into the mall in the ice cream shop, I literally was screaming at the screen, going. <laughs> You just told her something bad was going to happen. You just sent them, I think, to her parents yeah. and warned her, which kind of breaks all your rules. And now you think it's okay to come back into the mall and have ice cream? Like yeah. you're right where you're not supposed to be. I literally was going, oh, my God, this this was a really bad um, script flaw. I, I couldn't figure it out. Or they cut something else. Yeah, and the simple fact that you know we do have you know he drives them and drops them off. He's trying. He's in the. He's very very busy, and he has he. He's driving them. I think they. I think the. I think the mother or the sister lives like two blocks away, but to make sure they're not followed, he goes the long way around, sort of thing, to drop them off. And then she shows up and says, "Like, what the hell are you doing here? You kind of want to." Yeah, let's follow that. I'm. I'm going to follow that one under WTF. Yeah, I mean, WTF, what are you doing here in the mall? <laughs> yeah, especially after someone's like, you know, especially since we have this character, you know, very, very traumatized by her visions and about whether her visions are coming true. And then when it comes, you know, when Stormy and um, Odd do show up at her house and, you know, you know, he checks on the, the daughters and the and the, the boodock are basically like, you know, crawling over them and licking them and like you know, crawling underneath the bed and smelling where they might have been, the, the two daughters. And, you know, he reiterates that, you know, I'm coming by the next morning and we're going to, you know, we got we got to move you sort of thing. And then she shows up. It's like, what the hell are you doing here? Oh, I just had to get a birthday present. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I just happened to go to the busiest mall and stop by and get ice cream with your girlfriend. I mean, I was just like screaming uh about that inconsistency i was like you know something's gonna happen and you walk into the belly of the beast basically so yeah, those so- are the characters that deserve to die <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i also kind of wondered did it come to the expense of stormy at the same time sort of thing you know yeah, because I think that's- you know which is 
you know, because he does, he does mention, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, outline that in the book, but he does mention it quite a few times sort of thing that, you know, if this happens, if I stop this and happen, then someone else might have to take their place or something, you know, that sort of thing. And to the point where it doesn't matter if someone else takes their place because I care about these people. So he's kind of torn between that. And then we get the death of Stormy, which this is, this is, I like, I like this kind of red herring sort of thing where, you know, when you're reading it and you realize that Stormy's dead and they get to spend the final days together as her and, and the way that it's written. And then the final chapter where basically odd writes basically that he did this on purpose because he didn't want you to foresee it. And he wanted you to experience the way he experienced it and the love that he experienced. And I thought that was very clever because it could have been done very, very cheaply and very, very badly. But I think this is another credit to Dean Coots. He's able to do that and have the, have his character who's narrating the story be able to do that without it making it seem cheesy or felt like you've been cheated on or anything like that. And to be, and to give that, and then to give the explanation and make it, make the writer aware that he was very much aware of why he did this and why the story he, he's written down his memoirs like this. What did you think about Addison Timlin's, uh, you know, personification of Stormy. I think Stormy, I mean, I think what we got about Stormy is Stormy is in the eye of the beholder sort of thing. Same thing that, I mean, the thing is, of course, we do have a, you know, we're kind of stuck in a false narrative sort of thing because you're seeing Ozzy Stormy. And the thing is that, I mean, you're seeing Stormy as this, you know, the most beautiful girl ever. But then at the same time, we are sort of odds that there's nothing special about him or that no one sees him as something special. But the women that he comes across, like the nurse, where he needs to take a shower, and that women are flirting with him all the time and asking him about, uh, or are you still with what's her name? Like, because they want, they, they want him to be available for them. So obviously, odds not as goofy or as uh, as unattractive or just a normal guy there's something must be quite sexual about him because there's a lot of women throwing themselves at odd all the way through the okay world. well let's let's talk about my other pet peeve here um mm-hmm. and then we'll come back to stormy but i mean i did feel that there is a gross over sexualization of the female characters in odd thomas the movie I mean, she's wearing short shorts. She's got ice cream dripping all over. Um, you know, every time you see William Defoe playing the local cop, um, he's on the couch having sex with his wife. Um, yeah. The cop's girlfriend shows up at the barbecue. She's in a halter top. Like, I mean, the list goes on and on. And um, I, I realized it was 2013, not 2022. Uh, but it, still, really? It doesn't, it doesn't fit with the book at all. Because um, the women in Odd uh, Thomas, the book, are very... Stormy is not over-sexualized because Stormy was what... She 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 can't be over-sexualized because she was molested when she was younger. We find out that she doesn't have sex with Odd because of that. Because of that. So... Um, yeah, and that um, details her, all missing from the film. Yeah, and because we find in the book, Stormy's beauty comes from within... And because of the way that she looks at herself and the way that she handles herself intellectually, that's where the beauty comes from Stormy in the book. Um, you know, I will say though, I did love Addison Timlin's 
take on her. I mean, oh yeah, I, I think she did fantastic. I, I liked her, the actress. You know, yeah, I believed that they loved each other. I believe they were a couple. Um, I thought they had great on-screen chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked her. I thought she was a very, very likable character. Mm-hmm. And the one thing they did do is they did portray her as being smart. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, she's the first one that notices the POD tattoo. Um, she's, she's smart. And I did like that part of it. She only flirts to actually, um, to get information. She doesn't flirt to get what she wants in a provocative way as well in, in the book. And I think that they kind of, they kind of touched that a little bit in the movie, but it, yeah, I do believe that in the book, the women are not overly sexualized and they're all, they're all very complicated 3d characters who are not really, they're, they're not, there's not, there's not a bimbo in sight. You know, even, even the women who are flirting with odd are not doing it in a crass in your face kind of way, you know, sort of thing. They're, you know, and they're they're respecting boundaries as well. At the same time, with like you know, are you still with Stormy? Oh yeah, oh, that, that's a shame, sort of thing. And it's kind of like, you know, and as you said in the movie, they're not rubbing themselves up against their male counterpoints, and then basically they're just as some kind of sex object, sort of thing. So, which is kind of shame because I think that they could have, you know, when we get into you know, we'll get into the movie in about the next five ten minutes, but. If the movie was successful, this could have been a, a really interesting series of films that could have came out afterwards. But at the same time, ooh, yeah, there, there, are, there are problematic ways of how women are portrayed, even the woman who's being attacked by the dogs sort of thing in the movie. In the yeah. film, she's, she's, totally, she's fully 100% dressed. She's, she's not running around and, you know, she comes yeah, out. That like, character, I think, is called... I think that character's name is Lisette. Yeah. And in the book, she comes out and she's, you know, she's fully dressed and head to toe sort of thing. I mean, it's like, and she comes out like a, a saintly character who comes out and the dog and the wolves do see her sort of thing, but they, you know, they kind of cower away and they keep their distance. And she kind of does this saintly thing about her sort of thing, even though, even though, isn't she like a, isn't she like a woman of the, you know, isn't she, is she a prostitute or a call girl or something? in the book she's she's not she's not the person that was at the barbecue she's somebody else in the book someone that you know I, in the movie they they kind of like composite that character very quickly but in the book she's just um someone that you know just a normal person sort of thing that happened to be just show up and there wasn't that there wasn't the whole connection that they made in the movie from Though I could be wrong, but that when I was reading the book, that's what that's what I got from it, sort of thing. They did admit some characters uh, in the translation, which is pretty normal. Yeah, and they make a positive as well. Take you know, one three characters and put them into one sort of thing. So. Excuse me. So, um, you know, before we move on to the film, Ah Thomas the Novel. How highly would you recommend it? Out of a let's give it five stars. So, what would you give it, Leandro? And what do you about yourself, Barry? Yeah, I agree with Leo. I'd say uh, four is 
four, four and a half. Yeah, I, I liked it. I'm going to give it about four, four and a half. Um, also, because it's made me interested to read the other books. So if I get time, I will put, you know, when I'm not writing book reviews and stuff like this, I'm going to, you know, I want to dive back into Odd's world. So I found it quite fascinating. Well, this brings us to Odd Thomas the Film, which is a 2013 American supernatural mystery thriller film based on Dean Kuch's 2003 novel, The Same Name. It's directed and written and co-produced by Stephen Somner. Now, Stephen Somner, um, I guess he's probably most known for the Mummy films um, with Brendan Fraser. And stars Anton Yelcher, Yelchin as Odd Thomas, William Defoe as Wyatt Parter, and Addison Timlin as Thormy Llewellyn. Um, so we're going to just cut to the trailer and we'll get back to Odd Thomas the film. Ladies. <laughs> My name is Odd Thomas. Lord knows. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not the child of a celebrity. I've never been married to, abused by, or provided a kidney to a celebrity. But I do lead an unusual life. Knock, knock. Loop me in, Odd One. This place looks like some kind of shrine. Did you check the refrigerator for any severed heads? That is Stormy Llewellyn. Stormy and I are destined to be together forever. That must be for you. I found a gateway to hell. Get out of there, Audie. And communion with the dead. It's not about who's dead, sir. It's about who soon might be. You have a secret. You're either a clairvoyant, a psychic, or you got yourself some juice of the higher power. I'm here looking for a guy, a creepy guy. Any of those Bodach things around? Bodach. When they do show up, it's a sure sign that carnage and bloodshed are not far behind. If they find out you can see them, they will kill you. I'm just so scared for you, Adi. A lot of people died in that dream of yours, huh, Adi? Yeah, they did. Your dreams ever come true? August 15th. Trust me, that is the day that Pico Mundo will never forget. Hello, welcome back to Literary License Podcast. We're discussing Odd Thomas the Film. So, Barry, what are your thoughts of Odd Thomas the Film? Well, I thought 
Stephen Summers, who you already mentioned, is the writer, director, producer. I think this was his project for sure. Um, it, you know, I'm speculating a little bit here, but it looks like he went out and got the rights to this, um, got the funding for it and the financing of the film, put it together, because I believe they were still looking for a distributor at some point after the film. Um, so I think it went probably through a number of uh, revisions when that happens. Um, you have a lot of people that uh, may be chiming in about how to make it more commercial, how not to. Um, I also uh, have a lot of friends, you know, I'm based out of LA and London and had a, a lot of friends that worked on the film. Um, and I do remember having, you know, margaritas and drinks and cocktails with them after uh, work. I actually went down to the sets um, and had a chance to spend some time on location um, and it was it was a, a, a challenging project. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Um, there were a lot of personalities involved, and I think that uh, luckily did not come through in the final product. Um, I was actually really pretty pleased with it. I know it had a lot of trouble getting um, out, you know, and getting picked up. Uh, sadly, it never saw the big screen, which was the original intent. It was actually staffed and prepped as a feature film. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And I, I give a lot of credit uh, to that, uh, to Antonio Yeltsin, because I thought um, he brought a lot to the character uh, mm-hmm. and gave it some depth, the chemistry between he and uh, Stormy or Addison who played Stormy um, was really good. I love the cameo with Patton Oswald. Um, you know, there were some fun moments that were thrown in. I actually, you know, after seeing a lot of horror films for 2013, thought that the Bodaks and the visual effects of them were really well done. I mean, they're creepy. Um, their movement for that type of a budget of a film. Um, I, I thought that was pretty exceptional in it. So uh, I really enjoyed it. And I love love any movies that have a good twist at the end, even if you know them already from the book ending, um, it still can, a good filmmaker can make you still get chills and feel that moment. And I thought that that was mission accomplished. What about yourself, Leandro? What are your thoughts? Um, well, I really enjoyed Um Yeah. I didn't know at the beginning which year was the movie. Then halfway through when I was watching, I check. And I thought the same thing that Barry said. Oh, wow. For 2013, really good effects. Because these days, it's like really, you realize when if the movie, the visual effects are like certain way or the other. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you mean, you understand what I'm meaning. You know, mm-hmm. like, if you, if you watch a movie from like 1985, you will see that <laughs> it really not serious. But it was really clear. I really enjoyed when uh, towards the end, they have those twists that said, ah, this happened because this, this and that. But really, no, this was, they take you back and tell you, for example, that one of the police officers shoot someone, right? And because of that, the other one was dead. So I really, really enjoyed those kind of turns. Um, no, really interesting. The movie, the, the scenes, um, the tension when, when it's, when you think that the whole mall is going to explode and you're like, ah! <laughs> um, and for me, it called my attention, was really, really clever towards the 
the end when he's having breakfast with her. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but he had uh, cornflakes in his bowl and all her side was, the things were empty. There was a bowl empty with a spoon, but nothing inside. And until you, until you realize that she is dead, you know, then they understand why, why all the things were like with no food. And I thought that was really clever because at the beginning things like, okay, they're having, they're having breakfast together, but no. <laughs> so yeah, I really, I would, I would recommend this movie. I really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I I saw this movie when it first came out, um, and I really liked it. I mean, I was a fan of Elton, um, Elton Yelchin anyway, because I really enjoyed Huff. I was a big fan of Huff. Um, and um, so I watched that. And yeah, I have, you know, we, we discussed, you know, Addison Temlin, um, there's such a likability about her that basically you, you just kind of fall in love with her. I don't know. You know, the thing is, is like when I'm, you know, and I remember watching the movie and, and this is kind of before, you know, I had Wikipedia on my phone and now, you know, watching this time I had Wikipedia and started looking up other stuff. I was like, okay. And I started watching some other stuff she has. And there's a really likability about her that, you know, and it, it does fortify why, you know, the, the character loves her so much. And I quite like, that you know that those two people together William Defoe I think is wrongly cast personally I think that would have been better to have like a Scott Glenn play this character or a fatherly kind of figure there's not that fatherly embracing of Odd and the detective that that's in the book which I think the the whole film kind of the whole book kind of hinges on that and the film tries to hinge on that but there's a coldness. I mean, it's quite, I mean, I do like William Defoe, but there's a coldness to his betrayal here of that character, and there's not that fatherly warmth. And he, I mean, he's capable of doing that, but for some reason, he doesn't do that in this film. Or I don't know if that's some editing or the way it's been edited together. But there's that. There isn't that lack of warmth from that character. I agree. And he needs hundred percent. I agree hundred percent. I think that was. I mean, obviously, if William Defoe wants to be in your film, uh, and particularly of a budget this size, um, you're going to say yes. Um, that's a really good get. Even, you know, Stephen Summers had a, a, a great reputation for, like you mentioned, The Mummy and some of the other big movies that he had done. But still, for a little film like this, you needed a few names to carry it. I think Anton Yeltsin was up and coming. You know, we were familiar with him from doing other things, uh, Star Trek and and other films um but he was still up and coming so william defoe would have been a good hopefully um selling point to try to get the film into a bigger distributor Mm -hmm. however you could not be more than more right i think you know william defoe is someone who's you know having sex with his wife all the time every time the phone rings that fell that just rang false to me there was no chemistry there and the father figure thing i think you were spot on for that um you know, well, it, hinges on when he but Barry, there was no chance of they have a uh, climax because every time they were trying to, there was someone interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't get to fully enjoy his role, did he? Yeah, yeah I, I think you know, but you know that whole the whole book and the film hinges on that father son, you know, yeah. that, that father son relationship because when he does get shot and 
Odd has to show up at the hospital. You need that big payoff about him living and all this other yes. stuff. And it's, you know, and to be honest, the, what we get on screen is these are two colleagues. I mean, one's not really a colleague, but that's what they felt like colleagues. And, you know, Odd, Odd's kind of there, but Odd becomes, instead of like a father son relationship, we kind of got Odd's bothering him. Odd's just a mild irritant to the police chief. That's what we kind of get. That's what we get in the movie, which kind of like, you know, you kind of need yeah. that payoff. You know, luckily we have the the stormy payoff that basically we probably got one of the saddest for you know horror slash uh, mystery supernatural films really because I mean this film the the payoff is actually when you know and this is probably and I'll give William Defoe credit here when he finally goes you need to let her go now. And th- that part there, that William Defoe part that we get in that the final scene to this movie is what we needed all the way through the movie, sort of thing. Because you know, we finally get that. Yeah, that, I agree completely. Spot on. I mean, I, I had um, one of my biggest uh, issues with the William Defoe and Odd Thomas relationship was the part when he discovers Fungus Bob's body. I Thomas discovers Fungus Bob's body and he basically makes the comment that if I call the police chief now, he'll have to arrest me. And I thought, are you kidding me? You just give me three or four lines of dialogue in the first act that basically have the police chief saying everything you say is true. Everything you've ever told me comes true. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was completely at odds. That line of dialogue in that script uh, line was, was poorly done and, and someone missed that because um why all of a sudden would i'd say that the police chief wouldn't believe him uh for any reason when he's already gone on record as saying that he's always 100 percent correct um but you know they needed a third to get into the third act so well maybe it's, it's not that he was not going to believe it maybe they wouldn't have any any way how to cover it how well, to justify the, I mean, it the film, I mean, the film very much establishes that basically that basically there is a relationship between Odd, the um, the police chief, and the police chief's wife. You know, they they do kind of admit that you know Odd's not a stranger to these people. That obviously they're, I mean, it's not played very warmly. You know, I mean, I mean they could play this warmly, but but it also establishes that basically none of the police officers around them understands the situation here so so yeah i mean i think that you know they could have been a bit more clever there instead of having that that he could odd could have tried contacting the police chief or or go through the switchboard sort of thing or whatever and then maybe the police maybe talk to an officer that didn't feel that way or something i think there could have been a more clever way of playing that sort of thing so and i mean I mean, I have to sit there and say, though, the book is probably one of the most closely adapted for film in a lot of ways. The town looks fantastic. The, you know, the church, the scenery and everything like that looks fantastic. The way they were able to, you know, make the fun- fungus bob, you know, be- you know, turn into a poltergeist and that whole scene. I mean, there's a lot of va- very faithful adaptions going on within this. But at the end of the day, you know, maybe some of the set pieces maybe could have been less faithful and maybe be a bit more faithful to the relationships. 
Yeah, I think that might have been a challenge. I mean, you've given a um, compliment, so we might as well give a shout out to John Gary Steele, who was the production designer on uh, on Odd Thomas uh, and his art department. Um, I think they probably had, you know, not a lot of money to work with, um, given how many locations they used. You know, that mall was an abandoned mall um, and they were able to rent it out and convert half of it to make it look like it was a functioning mall. Um, You know, the little house that uh, was Fungus Bob's, that again was a set, Um, the gazebo and the church, you know, the church was obviously the location. I think some of that was probably CG'd in. They built that probably on stage. So, um, yeah, but the the director would have had, you know, a lot of input as to um, what they were going to feature there. But I found it all very believable. I thought it was all very small town, middle America. Um, you know, even the ice cream shop was adorable, you know, yeah. in, in a believable way. Um, so I quite I mean, what I quite like the some of the changes that they made. I mean, I understand that we needed the big, you know, the big finale. And I, I was fine. That was good. Um, and that, that didn't bother me because the, the book's a bit more low key finale than what we have in the book, you know. You know, you know, he doesn't go driving the van a hundred miles per hour to, you know, have the big fight sequence. But you kind of need that in a film anyway. You kind of need that big finale because we need to make, you know, the you know, multiplexes need to be satisfied at a finale, and that's what you know, it's kind of film would need. But I, one thing I will say that I think that the movie does do very well that the book kind of lacked is when the shootout happens and. Stormy comes up from behind the um, counter and and looks sad, but kind of like doesn't say it, but tells him to go on, go, don't worry about me, go on. He, she does that, and I quite I like the way the movie did that. We don't get that in the book, and I thought that was actually quite clever, quite well. That gave you that false thing that that you know she's not alive, that she didn't make it, but he sees her and thinks, and okay, then fine, you're fine, I'll go, sort of thing. The book is kind of like. She's behind the counter. He doesn't see her, but he ke- continues going because he's kind of put, put his that to the side. So he's kind of you know still going after the bad man. Where at least in the movie, he, he does care about it. he sees her and says, "Okay, fine, you're okay. I'll ke- I'll carry on. I'll, I'll I'll keep going, keep fighting the bad." So I thought that was quite a nice touch that we got in the movie with that. I agree. I think the movie did a great job of giving you that long pregnant pause before he delivered the line like it's not over Mm. um and i think if you hadn't read the book and you were just watching the film you know you might have thought oh okay after you know he's um chased them off that you know maybe this is done Mm. and i thought that false ending is call it uh in the to get you into that final push um was well done yeah i got chills when i was watching it I have to sit there and say the tattoo, the POD tattoo is really ugly. Really, really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> it, looked, it looked like a prison tattoo. It's like, okay, well. But, but saying that, it makes it believable because it's like, well, I can understand why you're trying to cover this up. Because if I had that ugly tattoo, I'd try to cover it up, you know? Yeah. Well, the Prince of Darkness does not make Prince of Darkness does not make pretty art, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> But basically, you're just walking around with pod on your forearm. <laughs> pod, what? Pod people, invasion of the body center, pod, pod me, sort of thing. But yeah. But, you know, I think 
you know, overall, I mean, I do enjoy the film, actually. I have to, you know, give kudos to it. I actually do enjoy the film. I mean, I've seen the film multiple times. Um, it's now on Shutter, so, um, you know, you know, watched it there. I, I bought a copy of it when I first saw it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the, under, the the novel had an underlying darkness that I'm not quite sure was in the movie. Um, I kind of thought they had a different tone, but it worked. Yeah. I think that it's almost like it kind of, it, I think the film was kind of going for like those teen movies where it's just like, you got two people in love and like, you know, and she, she's like, Oh, she's not very good looking. And she kind of takes off her glasses and all of a sudden she's beautiful. It had that kind of a aesthetic to it that this film did, <laughs> you know, those, you know, those teen movies that came out in like the 1990s, early two thousands. And I guess, which is kind of odd when you consider this is a 2013 film sort of thing. So we're not even looking at 10 years ago that this film came out sort of thing. I mean, it's nine years. So it's kind of like, so the film thing was kind of changing as far as those kind of films go, but it's kind of has that 1990s, 2000 film aesthetic to it, where everything's kind of, everything's a bit very, very clean looking, you know, the mall is very, very clean. Everyone's dressed very, very clean. Every. You know, everyone's very, very perfect. Even even your like odd character. I mean, I I like the character who plays Fat Ozzy in this, but I think they could have gone with something a bit more not so clean, a bit more, a little bit more grotesque and looking about him. This guy was just a bit pudgy. You know, this guy doesn't take up more than one seat in a movie theater. You know, Fat Ozzy's fat. We're talking about like, you know. Jerry Springer or, you know, yeah, I'm so fat. I need a crane to carry me to the hotel, the hospital before I die. Kind of fat. <laughs> yeah. You just got someone who's kind of like pleasantly round and funny <laughs> sort of thing. And not Keith, I, want to go back to, I want to go back to one of the first things you mentioned when we were talking about the novel, which is the first person narrative. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear your and Leo's thoughts about, if you thought that worked well in the film, because, um, you know, they basically took that sex in the city approach of the first person narrator Mm. um, throughout the entire film. And that was a little bit of a surprise to me. Mm. Well, I mean, we don't go anywhere without being with Anton or odd odds in every single scene, isn't he sort of thing. Um, And to be honest, I'm not, I never really thought about it until now, but it's true. I mean, they did do a first person narrative with him. The only time that we do, that we do get another person's narrative is basically when he's phoning and what the police chief's doing sort of thing. Cause there's, you know, or the murder of the girl who gets eaten by the dogs, you know, but that's in a flashback. So that's him putting the pieces together and this is what we see sort of thing. Um, And it's very rare that we don't, actually have Anton or Rod Thomas's view on things. So I, but then we do get that kind of thing where we have the, the, the policeman and his date where she finds the pictures and they put that together, which kind of is a bit odd considering that we, everything else is dealing from this point of view, but then we got and got this kind of inserted here, which, I mean, I understand from a movie point of view, it kind of puts get the audience but it also gives the audience like one one step ahead of the guy who's telling the story, maybe. Which is, you know, now that you said that, starting to put things together, it's kind of like, 
it works well, but then you get these other things like, okay, well, why did we just see that now? So now you now question bits of the movie that I took for granted. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, I mean, it's what did you think, Leo? Did you uh, notice? That? No, I didn't get your, the question uh, exactly. Can you repeat it? Well, I, you know, earlier you were talking about the book being written in first person narrative and that you're inside, you know, Odd's head. And uh, Stephen Summers obviously decided to keep that for the film and yes. the screenplay. And uh, I think that, you know, as a tool for a writer, it seemed to work really well to convey a lot of information. Um, from that aspect, I thought, you know, it did a really good job. And then later in the movie, I really struggled with it because while I thought he was an effective narrator, I think that some of the points he was communicating were literally book points. Um, maybe they were even possibly, you know, dialogue lines that were pulled from the book, um, but that we didn't need because the mediums are so different, right? I mean, the visual medium of a film, the actor's job is to tell you what the book writer has to describe to you yes. in words. And they started using that, uh, I, I'll use the term interiority, um, because you're inside the thoughts of their head. I thought that they started using it a bit as a crutch. I, I'll give you a few examples. Um, there were a couple of times when, you know, I would say, you'd hear his, his narrative, like, I'm exhausted, I'm lost, and somewhere I missed a clue. And he's telling that to the audience in his own thoughts we should be able to read the actor and understand that he's exhausted. Um, you know, you should never have to tell us that we should be able to see that he's tired. And by the time you got to that point of the journey, you knew he was panting and, you know, sweating that he was there and you need, you know, you didn't need that information. And so that's when I say it became a crutch. There was another moment that, that kind of sent me over the top. Um, which was in the third act. And, uh, you know, I, I can't believe it was a nurse or someone walks up to odd and says, if you hadn't got these bombs out of there, it would have killed five to 600 people. And I'm like, duh, we just watched five or 600 people crowded in the mall um, run for their lives. So, you know, that's where I can see it becoming misused a little bit because as an audience visualize, I mean, we saw the actors, we saw the scene yes. um, to have to have to hear that in their thoughts or in official dialogue, um, you know, was, was a little bit overused. Yeah. Uh, yes. I agree. When I watched the movie, I didn't, um, I don't know how to say, didn't realize about this. Now, when you tell me, now I'm sorry to think, and yeah, he was saying, oh, yeah, that day I woke up, I don't know, 8 a.m., and it did. And I think that, well, I don't know, it could be probably that it's a like decision of the, the director or I don't know who decides to do it like that. Like, I kind of like, okay, this could be something different to approach a movie when when the actor is telling you what was going on. And also, probably, I don't know, if you have an I don't know this actor, but He's not really, really, really famous. So probably it can help if the actor is not really great, like, interpreting, oh, no, I'm really sad or I'm really, I don't know, angry. If he tells you, that is a, can you put in place? Um, but yes, well, actually, they, they tell him that the, the girl is dead. 
<laughs> it was carry on. Yeah. I have to say that when it comes to a voiceover narrative in film, sometimes is I sometimes think of it as like lazy filmmaking sometimes. Yes. You know, I think it can be used. I mean, it's successful. Sunset Boulevard, I think, does it very successful. Don Ruse's Opposite of Sex is done very in a comedic way with Christina Ritchie saying about foreshadowing when she gets the gun in the, in the opposite of sex. But then there are sometimes like I'll see it, it's like, oh, no, not. I don't need the act. I don't need the character to speak to me. I, I'm watching everything. And sometimes it sometimes it can come across as like a lazy thing sort of thing. Um, I wonder, you know, what made me wonder is how much involvement um, or p- potentially approval Dean Koontz had on the screenplay. Um, because, you know, from what I can tell, Stephen Summers optioned the rights directly from um, Dean Koontz. And imagine you're Dean Koontz and someone who did the money um, series comes and asks you for the rights to your film, you know, after some other failed attempts that's a pretty good bet to take, but you would probably want to protect those rights. And so some of those lines may have been done at um, Dean's request. I, I don't know. Um, but, or maybe you know, that's where the book as well to give that little wink to the, the book fans. Yeah. Well, I don't think it was annoying at all. I think this is, you got the seamlessness that you can often get and we're Actually, in this Oscar season, um, there are so many writer-director combinations, um, and that just can make it quite seamless if they get it right, you know. And I think um, by having a writer-director here that he knew exactly what he wanted to deliver, but I also think he was being very respectful of Dean Koontz's work. And I, I've read a bunch of comments uh, that Dean Koontz made about about the film and he seemed really, really supportive and very, very happy with the outcome, which leads me to believe that he was, you know, giving notes on script or script input at a minimum. Well, considering what his, what the output of his films being adapted into film have been in the past. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I said, as we said before, I mean, Dean Koontz's work hasn't been, faithfully adapted and all that and anything really this is probably the best adaption of his of his work so you know and you know dean coots has been writing what since the 80s has it been since the 80s or 70s like maybe late 70s maybe he came around i would say i think he came around like early 80s i remember reading him when i was in school and then read him in college i used to be a heavy reader dean coots in, in the early days and kind of dropped off as life went on not because of um, it just gets hard. You start accumulating more and more authors. It gets hard to like keep up with authors after a while, sort of thing. Unless they're the, unless they're the kind of author like John Irving, I keep up with. Where he comes up with a book every five to six years, and I can keep up with that. Stephen King, when he come up with four or five often books a year, it's like no, I can't keep up with that sort of thing. There are other yeah, people I like either. to read as well, sort of thing. Um, so yeah, so it it would make sense. I mean, you know. I, I mean, having the voiceover narrative in this film didn't bother me at all. And it does bother me a lot in a lot of films or TV series. It was like you have this, you know, kind of a nod or twitch or twink to the audience or you have the a first-person narrative, a voiceover narrative. It does bother me. In this film, it didn't bother me at all sort of thing. So, and, you know, and, and I've, saw, I've seen the movie, I've said before numerous times, I, this is the first time I actually read the book sort of thing. It's first time me reading 
brought me this first time me reading Dean Coots in the last first book of Dean Coots I've read in 25 years sort of thing. So though I do want to get, you know, I will go back into his catalog and start reading more of his stuff. Cause I said before I used to be quite an avid fan at one point. So I think, yeah, I do think it's worked, but yeah, I do think, I think overall it's done quite well. I, I do think that, yeah, there are some instances now thinking back that you, you don't need to have, maybe give your audiences a little bit more kudos about them knowing what's going on. You don't need to reiterate what we've just seen sort of thing. And maybe there would have been some ways that you could have done it a bit more, not matter of factly, but done it with some of the odd Thomas's quirky, sarcastic comments that he uses in the book to give it that kind of situation. Yeah. But, but overall, I mean, that's a second job for an actor, right? Being the narrator and being the primary character. So you're delivering dialogue in, in very different ways. And I, I actually think that, you know, for the most part, they pulled it off. I think Alta, um, Alton, um, you know, the funny thing about it, I was watching when I was watching, it's like, this actually would make a very good series sort of thing where they could start adapting. But I think Anton, for the incredible, I mean, you know, God bless his soul. It's sad that he's, you know, that he's died now. Um, it's a terrific way, but it's really hard to see another actor do this character now. He kind of made this character his own. And, you know, for someone who, you know, basically, I mean, when he was in Hoff, that's the first time I saw him. And I mean, he was phenomenal to put, you know, to, to the character he played and, you know, how that played and, you know, and to be able to do something that was quite a heavy hitting series at its time. Um, and then, you know, you know, and then, of course, Star Trek comes along and, you know, he's just supporting characters in that. But, you know, this is probably I think this is his first film carrying a film from point A to point B and carrying that all the way through. And for that, he, he could see how gifted he was, because, I mean, basically, it's really hard to see another actor do this role now, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been done through history a number of times, right? I mean, 2013 is a long time ago, <laughs> um, as much as I wish it wasn't. Um, but uh, I think your point about its serious potential is a really good one, because with the series of books and with the evolution, revolution that streaming brought us, um, you can see this type of content would have been probably better served um, in a streaming serial type of let the character uh, and the character relationships evolve a bit more because um, you have, you know, you have a number of books you can move through. Reminds me a little bit of Outlander, mm. right? I mean, you have, it has legs. It can go on for seasons and seasons um, with the content that Dean Koontz has put out uh, related to the world of Odd Thomas. Mm. And I, I do think in, in 2022, um, it would probably be better served as a streaming series than necessarily a feature product. And, and with that, you, you know, ideally you'd secure those distribution rights ahead of time, because I think one of the biggest, one of the saddest things about this movie is that it didn't ever get seen in the way it was intended to get seen. Um, it plays really well on television, but um, you know, it never really got the broader distribution that it was planned for. Do you know why? It, I think there was problems with um, the marketing of the movie company. Uh, who, I mean, what? Maybe it changed hands, or the marketing changed hands, or or yeah, I think it was definitely developed as a uh, independent project. But 
you know, with the credibility of Stephen Summers, you had John Baldecki as a producer on it. Um, you know, they obviously raised the financing, but went out. I'm going to, I'm assuming, um, I don't know this for a fact, but went out to, um, you know, then sell the film probably after they shot it um, to get broader distribution to the studios. And for whatever reason, I think there were some financing problems along the way. Um, There's a lot of stories on. Well, it says here the film wrapped in 2011, but was delayed in July of 2013. It was reported that the release of the film was had been delayed because of legal action by two out of 10 productions against outsourced media group and others for breach of contract. The suit alleged that $25 million should have been spent on prints and advertising to support the release of Odd Thomas in the U.S. and another $10 million to partially refinance certain loans, which the production company failed to produce. Yeah. yeah, the business side of it kind of screwed it over. I mean, I mean, it took two years for it to even get released. I mean, that's quite a lot of time for it to be sitting on a shelf as well. You know, and by that time, I mean, your, your actors have gone on to other jobs and you know, you can't do that media junket that you need to do right away sort of thing. And, you know, it's a shame, really. Cause, but then seeing it, I kind of wondering if it would have done well at the cinema anyway, because it does feel like a, it does have that kind of, it's, it's great seeing it at the movie theater. I mean, it's great seeing it at home, but would have been as great seeing it in a cinema. Would you feel as satisfied as going to a cinema and seeing it? Don't know. Yeah, it's true. I can't think of anyone scene, you know, where I would have been mesmerized by having that, you know, on the silver screen on the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in hindsight, I don't know what the the final production budget was on it, um, but uh, usually uh, A and P matches production, so it would have been a twenty to twenty five million dollar budget. It looks to me like it was a bit smaller. Than that, yeah, uh, because of all, the, yeah, okay, well, that's about right then. So, um, but I don't, I don't remember any one scene. Uh, I do think the Bodax and the uh, the darker tone might have come through um, mm-hmm. to see them huge and crawling on the ceiling and on top of the car. That might have brought a little bit more of the horror aspect forward mm-hmm. um, and made it a bit darker, which would have lent itself towards the book tone. Um, but other than that, like, I mean, you know, it was real, real, real time. I don't know if there was any one scene there that would have wowed me on the big screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, for me, what really wows me about the whole thing is um, the heartfelt emotion at the end. That, that's what brings me back to this movie. Because, I mean, I feel, I feel like I was really wounded in the heart when Stormy died sort of thing. I, and, I 100% agree they nailed the ending. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what break that's what makes for me it's not the bodox or the mystery or all putting all that together. It's that emotional end that brings me back to this film because it's like it's very rare that you get a film like this that has that emotional core in it and I think that's what draws me back to this film. Um anything else? I'm not quite sure. I mean it's, you know, you know, I watch eight. You know, I watch films like Eight Below with the dogs or My Dog Skip, which are basically, you know, for that emotional center sort of thing. Okay, you can know. we just talk about the butterflies for a minute, though? When she dissolves into butterflies, I literally had goosebumps on my mm-hmm. arms. I thought that was a brilliant, creative moment. 
And the look on his face when he when he when he says goodbye, you know, there's like I know that the whole that was so played so wonderfully. Every every I mean, the last ten minutes of this movie is I mean I can't fault whatsoever. Everyone was everyone acted beautifully in it. Everyone done their part sort of fantastically well and and yeah, As, if they do make Odd Thomas into a series sometime down around, it's gonna be you can whoever they cast as Odd Thomas is you got to find that that likability that. And that I, Anton Yelchin has that in this movie. He has that. He, you, you're down for it, you know. Whoever they get to do that, they're going to have to have incredible starability. Not not as like a huge box office star, but that huge likability, that huge, you know, you know, person who able to carry that, could be able to carry that series sort of through. Who would you cast, Keith? Who who would be your, your I Thomas today? You know, I think it would. I don't think. I think that you can't go with a Hollywood um, star. I think you have to go with a character actor. And I can't. I mean, I can't think of anyone off the bat. I would. You know, God. I mean, I wouldn't want any of the Riverdale cast in there at all. But it's going to have to be someone who's kind of like, kind of. Maybe, you know, I guess if I had a push and I was going through a Netflix character, maybe the guy who played Sabrina's boyfriend, Harvey, in the in the, the, oh. the adventure, someone that I, that kind of person who's kind of like kind of cute, but kind of goofy, but kind of they but they're gonna have to be very vulnerable at the same time, but very strong. It's gonna have to have that kind of a mix sort of thing. I'm not very I'm not very up on my teen actors at the moment, but if you know, for me, if if Odd Thomas was a female character in the '90s and 2000s, it would be Amanda Burns for me. <laughs> she was female, <laughs> but that kind of character, yeah, sort of thing. You know, but I'm sure there's someone out there. I, I mean, you know, there's okay. Here's of- one for you. What about the um, actor that plays the Bard in The Witcher? Yeah, he. Yeah, you know. Different haircut, of course. I don't think I think we can get rid of that kind of a um, wavy, wavy hair. But yeah, he would he'd be quite good. Yeah, um, yeah. Because when you ask that you question, I'm kind of going through all the things I've seen recently with like actors. Maybe one of the Cobra Kai kids. Maybe one of them probably could do it. Or just as long as it's not one of the Stranger Stranger Thing kids. They're they're starting to annoy me now. <laughs> if I see Wolfgang Hardon or whatever his name is one more time, I'm just gonna be like, I don't want to see you in anything. You're, you're you're not, you know. He's kind of reminding me like the Kira Knightley. They keep pushing him forward, saying so how great they are, and I was like, I just don't see it. <laughs> Thing. So, um, for Odd Thomas, the film, out of a scale of one to five, what would you grade it? What about yourself, Barry? Oh, God, this grading thing. Um, this is a hard one. I, I think um, I think it delivers on the story. I love the ending. Um, I've called out a few of my pet peeves, and I think I would only discount it maybe one star so i'm gonna go with four stars 
And yourself, Leandro? Yeah, I was thinking of four stars also. Mm-hmm. I'm it was gonna... really good and um, uh, you know what the the story goes like fast. You know, you're like, well, what was going on here? You know, it's like really cool movie. I really enjoyed it. It was like easy to watch, entertaining. Yeah. I'm gonna give it four stars. It's one of those movies that I do I do tend to show people when they you know oh can we watch a movie or oh, let's give this a try and they, people do like it so I'm gonna give it the four stars, and that has to do with Anton Yelchin and uh, Addison Timlin and the and I love I'm a sucker for that that emotional ending sort of thing and that made me feel something and I you know I, I don't I don't cry but I get that bottle lip quiver thing going when I do watch this film which I'm it, you like. Tell the truth, Keith. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't. I haven't. There's only. There's only a couple of films I've actually do the whole bawling or the tears. The tears actually fall, and, and they're kind of pathetic films. My dog Skip. Have you ever seen that? With um, Diane Lane and Kevin Bacon and the little kid from Malcolm in the Middle, and it's it's basically. And the, you know the thing is, the dog, you know, won't give anything away, but basically is what happens to you yes. after you go on to university. And your dog's still at home, and that's what makes me. Yeah, better. I have seen the movie, and I cried a lot. Yeah, when he came back, the dog was really old. Yeah, yes, that's it. yes. And, it's just like, and oh he has God. been waiting all the time. Yes, and it just made me so guilty for like my pet then when I left home. And eight below, I watched that with Paul Walker the other day. Do you see those dogs? And it's like, you know, and they laid those dogs behind, and they're kind of missing them. Like, oh my God. Yeah, so yeah, so there are a couple films that kind of do that for me. Or Shirley MacLaine, yeah, my daughter's a pill. <laughs> that turns them into a man. And this kind of does that for me, sort of thing. So if a film can really touch me emotionally, then I kind of I've, I have I always have a soft spot for it because I'm quite I'm quite jaded <laughs> when I watch things, you know. And I, not you know before we close, one other thing I had to say about Thomas, what I also loved about it is that it doesn't have that sugary, sweepy orchestration that comes in with the realization that Stormy died as well. It was all very low key, which I liked. It's not like you know the violins are going, okay, here we go, here it comes. You know, I like that. I like that that understatement. It did have butterflies. It did have butterflies. Visually, I'm fine. It's when you get the great big orchestra coming in telling you that this is a sad moment, then that's when my, all of a sudden it's like anything that feeling, my heart just starts to harden. It's like, oh God, now you're telling me how I should feel. I hate that. So, Well, this brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast, our Kings of Horror um, book to screen. Our next um, books to horror will be Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho with the film of the same name. And of course, we'll be continuing our um, series of 80s, our two for one, which will be covering two 80s films, Dead and Buried from 1981 and The Uninvited from 1982, where we'll see 1980s horror films give us loot to days gone by as it moves forward to what we would known as 1980s horrors. 
Um, I warn our listeners that when you do watch these, Dead and Buried is a fantastic film done to it. And let's just say the uninvited will have you chuckling at parts because we are talking about a mutated cat that goes on a killing spree of a yacht. So there we go, folks. And of course, um, we'll be continuing with our dark shadows um, later on. So it's good night for myself and good night, Barry. Good night. I enjoyed it. Hope to see you guys again soon. And good night, Leandro. Good night. Good night. And we'll see you next week for Bewitched, where we do episodes season three, episode eight.